In Acts 20.35, Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. For this four-week vision series at Sojourn East, we will be exploring what Jesus' way of giving looks like. We're calling this series, Serve Someone. Each week, we will look at a different aspect of the life of Christian service, both inside and outside the church. And finally, before we welcome Pastor Mo to the stage, we're gonna read from God's Word. So if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, and Hebrews 13, one through two. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitalities, hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, soldier and family. It is so great to be with you guys. I haven't been back here in about a month. I've been uh, back in California preaching at some of our uh, soldier and sister churches. So being able to see your guys' faces this morning has been a great comfort for me. Um, over the next four weeks, so we just wrapped up the book of Ecclesiastes, a little bit of direction of where we're headed over the next four weeks. Um, so our short sermon series is going to be considered and called Serve Somebody. So that's going to be kind of the undergird of the next four sermons that you guys will be able to hear. My message this morning is going to be titled Hospitality, God's Love in Action. So hospitality, God's love in action. And my encouragement is to rediscover biblical hospitality. What invitation uh, does God have for for us uh, in hospitality? And how do we do that well here within the body of Christ? But how does that extend further outside of our doors into the city, into the nations around us as well? So before I dive in, would you guys join me in prayer this morning? Lord, I thank you that you are a God who has an eye on the outsider, the eye on a stranger, and Lord, that you love them, that you bring them near, you call them your your sons and your daughters. I hope we remember, Lord, that there was a, a point in time that we were outsiders to you. We didn't know you, we weren't walking according to who you were, but it was in that exact moment that your love shined upon us. Help us to remember that, help us to believe that, and help us to be conduits of your grace here in your church and also in the city. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, One of the questions I want to open up and ask you guys is, how would you guys define hospitality? If a co-worker or friend came up to you and said, hey, what is hospitality? What would you say to them? The Holocaust, it was a deliberately organized state-sponsored murder of approximately six million Jews by Nazi Germany during World War II. And many Jews, aware of what would happen if they were caught, decided to hide within the cities and wait out the war. And arguably the most famous that we know was a teenage girl by the name of Anne Frank. Her family, along with a handful of others, decided to hide out during the war. So they hide in what was called an annex, a secret compartment in the back of an industrial building. They hid and they lived there without stepping outside, feeling the sun on their body for 761 days, just over two years. 
since they were able to, since they were unable to come outside, they had to depend on a small group, a very, very, very small network for food, books, and just general community, just general conversations. Two of their supporters were Jan and his wife, Mape. They were Dutch couples. They would come up with extra food rations, just enough to feed their own family and feed these Jewish families that's hiding out during this war. She would often sit with them and eat, have conversations with them, and she would be the one or one of the ones who would provide updates of what's happening outside these four walls, what's happening in society, what's happening in a war. As many of you guys know who may be familiar with Anne Frank and her story, um, they were discovered by police and SS one day. So those eight uh, Jewish families that were hiding, uh, they were arrested and they were sent off to concentration camps. And of the eight that were hiding, only one survived, and that was her father, uh, Otto. But it was Mabe, the Dutch woman, who went up to the annex after they ransacked the apartment. She saw tables turn, chairs flipped over, and on the floor there, there was scattered a bunch of notes from Anne's diary. She gathered them up, she hid them, and she stored them. She preserved them. So that's literally how we have Anne Frank's stories today, was because Mape, the Dutch woman, care for them, love them, and preserve that story. If you were to be discovered as either assisting or hiding Jews, uh, your fate would have been uh, near death. Uh, At worst, it would have been death. At best, it would have been a lengthy prison sentence. So the question is, why would this Dutch family do that? They were not Jewish. They were not blood-related um, to the Franks or the other couples that were there, why would they go undergo that risk that them and their family could possibly be killed as a result of it? Well, interestingly, during an interview in her later years, they sat down with Mate, and they asked her that in spite of this great cost, why did you do it? You knew this would cost you your life. And I'll quote her response directly. This is what Mate says. He said, she said, these people were in need and I could help. You don't say no to that, do you? She says, I wanted to fulfill my uh, human obligation. I could help them, and so I did. I think she's getting at an essence of part of uh, the, the, the true human experience, the true humanity is to look at others and what they may be going through and to take on those burdens as if you yourself was going. There were such simple words, but yet so powerful at the same time. I think this morning, brothers and sisters, God is inviting you, he's inviting me, he's inviting us to rediscover and reorient our lives generously that we may see with fresh biblical eyes the grace and the generosity that we have received from God so that we may be conduits of that grace. So the grace of God doesn't come to us and just sit there and nurture us, but that it has hands, it has feet, it has a heart, and it goes out and it extends I want to look at uh, this underneath three titles this morning, or three sections. One would be the Father's commandment, second would be Jesus' example, and a third would be our invitation. So let's walk through, look at the first one. This would be the Father's commandment. So as a pastor of community life, I'm excited. I always get excited when I read the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1 said, keep on loving uh, one another as brothers and sisters. I'm like, yes. I'm in a community group. I lead a community group. I also oversee that ministry as well. I am about brothers and sisters not walking through life or doing Sunday onlyism, but they are connected with other brothers and sisters and they're journeying. But I also recognize and understand that if we're not careful, we have a unique propensity to only 
think inwardly, to only think about the brothers and sisters within either our community groups or within our church. But verse two doesn't leave us there. It says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so, some have entertained or some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. We must remember that we are called only to be hospitable to one another in a congregation of the local church, but we are called to be hospitable to those out there who do not look like you, believe what you do, believe what you believe, and think what you think. That is who God is calling us to not to forget to be hospitable. Let's dive a little bit deeper as we explore biblical hospitality. So one of the questions I asked towards the beginning is, how would you define hospitality? Well, let's turn inwardly. Let's see, how does Scripture define hospitality, and how is that model in a text as well? I'm big on definition, so if we get our definition wrong, we're pretty wrong on how we exert that as well. So the word hospitality in our English New Testament comes from a Greek word, philozenia, and it's a compound word that means love and stranger or love for immigrants. So it's literally saying that hospitality is to love the stranger and it's to love the immigrants, to bring them near. You know, when we look back in antiquity, traveling in ancient world, it was extremely dangerous and it was very risky. Uh, people were susceptible to harm, and there also there weren't many formal inns to stay in. So there's not many quote unquote hotels you could go to at this time. And if you're traveling a significant distance, you will have to rely on the kindness and the generosity of your family or kin if they were in that place, or a complete stranger, which was more likely the case. And Tim Keller, he expounds in great detail on just the uh, ancient hospitality code of the ancient world. Uh, and what he concludes is that it had four parts to it. And many of these parts are found in scripture. The four parts of the ancient hospitality code was invitation, screening, provision, and departure. I want to take a minute to unpack these four briefly. So invitation. So if you're traveling, you will come to the city and you will come to a public place. This may be either the city gates. This may be a city well, somewhere there that's publicly. And if you didn't have any kin, what you would do is you would have to wait. You would wait and a member of the community and society would have to come to you and have to invite you in to stay with them. Second part of it was screening. They wanted to make sure, especially the community themselves, they wanted to make sure that there wasn't some type of undercover military coup that once a stranger came into the community that they were going to overtake them once they fell asleep. So part of that would be screening to figure out uh, their intentions while they were there. Third is provision. So if you were to invite someone into your home, it was your responsibility to wash their feet. You'll wash your feet you would throw a feast for them. So you wouldn't throw some goldfish crackers and a glass of milk. Like you would throw a feast for these people. And also, it was your responsibility to provide rest. Traveling was weary. I traveled with kids all the time, and that's exhausting. I can't imagine walking with them. It was weary, and they were like, this is your responsibility. And lastly was departure. So typically, in ancient times, the most you would stay with the complete strangers was about two days. But while the stranger was inside of your home, it was your responsibility to keep them safe and to send them off. That's what the ancient hospitality code looked like. Um, and I was convicted as I'm reading this. I'm baffled. I'm like, that's, that's hospitality? I, I know I do not do that well. And to be honest, that's a completely foreign process to us in our culture, in our society, even much of the world. Um, for us, if you think about it, if you guys have either family members, in-laws, or certain friends that want to stay, but you're not really too big on them, you could stick them in a hotel. You could put them across town. 
Some of you guys may have guest house or guest wing, or you don't, don't, you can have them around, but you don't have to have them underneath your exact roof. But friends, biblical hospitality, it isn't an extension. We don't do it because of what we may gain or get out of it, um, nor do we not do it because it may impact our families and it may impact our schedule. But instead, biblical hospitality is an invitation to take on the cost of bringing people near and care for them because God himself has brought you near and care for you. Don't forget it. You know, God's command for a hospitality goes much, even though the ancient code was great, his command to the people of Israel was much deeper and it was much wider even than the social climate of what it was to provide hospitality and antiquity. And we see this clearly when God makes a covenant with his people Israel in the wilderness. So he's bringing them together and he's, he's, he's letting them know what type of society, what type of community he wants them to be. Look with me in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. Moses writes, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. See how he's caring for them. In verse 19, Israelites, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. He's calling them to remember, he's calling them to remind them and know that I love these people that are, that, are, that are sojourning with you. I care for them like I care for you. And I want you to care for them the way that I care for you so that you may not forget. Even though you're free, you're no longer in bondage in Egypt. There was a time in which those shackles were around you. Do not forget that. Care for them as I care for you. And looking on from that, we see Leviticus for, uh, chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. He writes, when a, soldier, uh, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, not even as a guest, as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. His exclamation point on the end, I am Yahweh. That is why you were to do this. You see, God is reminding and he's inviting the Israelites to uh, remember over and over and over. And it may seem redundant as many times as God says, remember in the scriptures. Why does he say it? Because they are prone to forget. You are prone to forget. And I am prone to forget. God is saying to the Israelites here, he says, remember when I heard your cry and I saw your affliction down there in Egypt. He says, remember how I took you by my right hand. I initiated that. I took you by my right hand and I led you out of the house of bondage. Remember how I split the Red Sea and allowed you to cross on dry land. Remember that in a barren desert where there was no food or water, I provided manna from heaven. I provided water out of a rock. For 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out, even though you're in a desert. Your sandals held up. I care for you, and I provide it. So, God is, so when, when, when the Israelites would have heard this imagery and seen this, they would have remembered, they would have seen that God is inviting them to remember and to freely extend the grace that they have so graciously received. He's saying, let my grace that I extended to you go out to others, because at one point, you were the others. It's a beautiful thing to remember where you came from. 
Remember what God has done. You know, remember a humble beginnings has the ability to um, either create, I think, uh, a, a moral superiority amongst those who are still that way, or has the ability to kind of stir in compassion because you know exactly what that feels like. One of my favorite hip hop icons is Jay-Z. Jay-Z grew up in uh, New York Marcy housing projects. Very bad place to be. He's now estimated of having a net worth of north of 1 billion, maybe 1.5 billion. But Jay-Z, what he does every single year, he goes back to those Marcy projects and he cares for those kids, whether it's, move, whether it's meals, whether it's toys, whether it's clothing. He goes back to the place we came from because he remembers he was once there and he doesn't want to forget them. He goes back. Second point I want to walk through as we think about biblical hospitality is the son's example. The son's example. So just a reminder, biblical hospitality, it is very intentional and it is very costly simultaneously. But as we extend it, we see the depiction of love's God, or God's love and grace go outwards. Um, and as I was working through this, one thing I thought about was the Good Samaritan automatically. What I want to do is we'll scan through a couple of those verses, but I want us to look at those what hospitality lenses on as we navigate a story that has become familiar, possibly too familiar to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the story, there was a man that was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, probably about an 18-mile uh, journey. He gets robbed. He's beaten half to death. So this man is stripped here in the open road, and he's bloody. He's probably going to die unless someone intervenes. Two of his own kinsmen walk by and don't offer a finger priest and a Levi. They see him. They keep going because they got plans. They got bu- they're, they're, they're busy. This may not align with the schedule. They may be ceremonially defiled. The scripture doesn't say, but they got plans and they don't see it significant enough for them to stop on their busy journey. What I want to look at is uh, verses 34 and 35 from the book of Luke. Remember, let's look at these with hospitality lenses on. Let's see, how did this Samaritan care for this man who was halfway dead. He said he went to, verse 34, he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He's touching him. He's using his own resources from his own pockets to care for this man. So he put the man on his own donkey and bought him, or brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. And he says, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expenses you may have. You see, this Samaritan, as we look at it, he was willing to be interrupted at his own risk, meaning that when he saw the man's body on a floor, it's possible that robbers could have been hiding behind the rocks to get him just like they got him. But that wasn't a deterrent. Even though there was possible a threat in the midst of that, his schedule will have to be altered to the next day. He says, I can do something about it, and so I did. He stayed with him the night, and he cared for him. And he invited the innkeeper. He's saying, there is two dinar, here are two days' wages. Any expenses that may occur, here it is. And also, this was a place of compassion. So he didn't keep a running uh, uh, invoice or tally and say, hey, make sure you give it to that man when he becomes conscious uh, because these are his expenses. He says, no, I'll foot that bill. I can help. And so I did. So he simply had compassion on him. And as a result, that man's suffering, his burdens and his challenges, it now 
became his. Jesus says, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. This is what it looks like to have intentional eyes and to have resources that I gave you to do something about it. You see, hospitality is a very tangible expression of what it looks like and what it means to love God and to love neighbor. Very tangible expression. You know, ultimately we see God's heart for the outsiders in the cross of Jesus. You see, in order to bring us in and to bring us near who were strangers, foreigners, and wanderers, it would be both intentional and it would be very costly on Jesus' side. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 16, here what Paul writes. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? Not even by the resource, by the precious blood of Christ. It was costly. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, we see that his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body, one new humanity, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Jesus, is, we were seeing that Jesus' intentionality, it wasn't theory, it wasn't like theoretical. It was, no, 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 his cause to bring us near, it looked like something. And it looked like a, it looked like a cross, And on this cross, those barriers that divided the people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles, that barrier is broken. And there's one new humanity that exists as a result of that. Not only that, this one new humanity, it has peace with the Father. Those who are wanderers are now brought near by Jesus' intentionality. He goes on to write and explain in verse 19. Would you look with me? Paul says, So now you Gentiles, which is probably the majority of us, so you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. When you see that language, it should remind you of the Old Testament. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. What are you? You are citizens along all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Jesus' intentionality, his death on a cross, takes you from a stranger, a foreigner, a wanderer, and it adopts you. It removes you from being an orphan who's looking over their shoulder, not sure where they stand, to a beloved child of the king, to a beloved son or daughter. You see, in the Old Testament framework, the Israelites, they were to extend hospitality to outsiders as a reminder that they were slaves in bondage in Egypt, but God had set them free. We as Christians, we extend hospitality, remembering that at one point, you and I were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin, but Christ has set us free. Do you see the pattern? God's invitation and his grace and his mercy is not just to remove you from whatever environment you came from and keep you from that. It's to remove you, to to rescue you, to deliver you, to provide salvation for you but to have a heart of remembrance. We cannot get too high in ourselves. We can't walk with God long enough to forget that there was a time that you were not. There was a time that you were far from God. There was a time the Israelites were in bondage and they were slaves in Egypt, but at a certain point in a certain time, 
The love of God showed up, delivered them and rescued them, not to make them prideful, but to have them remember so that the compassion they receive goes outwards, goes outwards. Lastly, let's look at our invitation. So we looked at the Father's command, Jesus' example. Lastly, our invitation. So we have, the, the, I would say, the duty and also the joy of extending biblical hospitality to one another as we should practice continuously, but also as we've been following in our theme, those outside the household of faith. And if you're familiar with our society, we are moving further and further and further away from the thought of there being a God, at least a God who has revealed himself. You see, hanging up church signs is no longer going to be effective in our society. We can line up sojourn signs on our front yard saying that we're open to 9 to 11. People are skeptical. They have disbeliefs. They have preconceived notions of what God is like and what his followers are like. And it's very hard for a non-believer to come into this space by chance, randomly. It's very difficult. I believe one of the most effective ways of us experiencing life ourselves and introducing people to Christ in a Christian life is through hospitality, the forgiven discipline, the forgiven art of hospitality. Here what John Piper once wrote. He said, therefore, when we practice hospitality, here's what happens. He's saying that we, those who extend it, he's saying we experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and it dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. We typically think of the cost. How much would it cost us? How much would it cost us to schedule our, our plans, our house? Piper is saying, you want to experience life? You extend what you so graciously received. It's not a burden. It's a gift and it's a joy. And I want us to invite you guys to think of our, our homes, um, your income, your cars, your vehicles, as not only yours. You're stewards. You're managers. You can think of yourselves as those who are renting things that you own for the glory of God. You own them, but God ultimately owns them. So let's look at our home as like a sacred space, a ground zero that we can vertically remember the generosity of God and it horizontally goes out to those in need of the generosity of God. Not you, Siri. Um, Rosaria Butterfield, one of my favorite artists, uh, sorry, one of my favorite authors in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. This is what she's right. This is what she writes. And I affirm you and I will say, you know, read her, her, her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, or she has a fantastic memoir. Uh, I think it's called The Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It is amazing. But here's what she writes. She said, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes as not their own, but it's God's gift for the furthering of the kingdom. And a question that I want to ask you guys today is that, how you view, is that how you view your house? Is that how you view your apartment complex? Is that, how you, is that how you view your dormitory? Or is your home a place where you come to rest and to withdraw from the world out there? Your home is a powerful place. It's a place where Christianity and the love of God can be experienced 
by outsiders who wouldn't dare walk into these buildings. Your home has power. See, hospitality can't be done on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It won't get it done. Sorry, TikTok, young guys. Um, Arguing people who don't share your views on Facebook, that doesn't cost you anything. You can sling what you think or feel and sign out and not have to face that person, not have to sit across the table from him. You see, it's much harder to open up our homes, but it is there, brothers and sisters, that the love of God can be experienced. You see, bringing someone underneath your roof, it doesn't mean that you approve of all the things that they do. You could bring someone in your roof or to a table, maybe to lunch, who thinks that your belief in God is crazy, that your real view is absolutely nuts, who thinks that sin, we won't be accountable to sin, your choice, my choice, whatever the case may be, you can sit down with these people. And we see Jesus doing that consistently, coming underneath the roof of people who do not look like him, think like him, or share his godly convictions. And Jesus called much flack for that. But Jesus didn't care. He was willing to spend time with them. He was willing to bring the kingdom of God near to people, near to them. It's a discipline that I've I've neglected. I can confess that. I do a good job sometimes, but not all the times. A lot of times, uh, the cost of it makes me over-rationalize and think. But one of the beautiful things about hospitality is it can be messy. It can be authentic. Many of you guys today have a lot of kids. And if your thought is, I can't extend that because the house is too chaotic, the house is too messy, it might be. But what's the cost if you don't do it? That neighbor, that friend, that mailman, that will never come underneath your roof, never see what the love of God looks like tangibly as an expression of how you love your family and how you love them. Hospitality is costly, but it costs much more if we do not partake in it. One of my encouragements is the person that you guys are cordial with. You know that neighbor that you guys wave to, you know his first name, you know her first name, you guys always say hi, shoot the breeze, but you've never been inside their house. They've never been inside of your house. What would it look like to pray about that? And you be the one to initiate. As God's love was initiated to you, you be the one to initiate and say, hey, would you like to come over for a meal? Would you like to come over for coffee? People are willing to partake, but they're not willing to initiate. Your neighbors will respond. I remember when I came to faith uh, to Jesus, it was over a meal. Sitting at a table, eating a burrito bowl maybe at Qdoba. The goodness of God showed up that night. My buddy Marlon, he came to faith um, at a coffee place. Sitting at a table, ordinary means of coffee, the love of God broke through. My buddy James came to faith uh, in our backyard. Me and Nick are hanging out. James comes in around a fireplace at a chair, talking. Love of God shows up. See a table, a chair, food, or coffee uh, over a long period of time. Don't think of this as a, as, as a blitz. My bigger hope is re, to, for us is that we remember the grace of God and is that as we live our lives, the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years, we live them as a remembrance of how God has been good to us and what does it look like to be good to others. A couple of tangible takeaways. I would invite you guys to serve with me, serve with Lindsay, serve with us on the hospitality team on Sundays. 
So most of my sermon has been focused hospitality towards outsiders and those outside the faith in Christianity, but also hospitality is to be extended inwardly as well. Will serving on a hospitality cost you? Yes, because we serve twice a month at least. And there's times where you have to get up earlier to come here for huddles. Will it cost you? Yes, but I encourage you not to let the cost of something be the driving factor. Instead, look at it as how you can experience God's grace and how it can be extended outside of you as well. Biblical hospitality, it's cost, but it's beautiful. Even when I think about sojourn, sometimes it feels that our church is, uh, is very nice, but we have space to grow and be hospitable towards one another. Meaning that even when you guys here on Sundays understand that even though you have your own relationships, your community groups, your connections, there's people that are here that are new who do not have that. How do I know? I talk to them. I see them all the time. So when you guys are around, whether it's before service or after service, look to your left and right. And if you don't know someone, don't think that, oh, if they came up to me, I'll introduce myself. You be the one to initiate. God's love was initiated to us, not to stay with us, but to go through to others. And if you're here, and if you've been wrestling with thoughts on, maybe I'm too far from God, I've done too much, I have too much of my history, too much of my background uh, in order to be brought near to God, that's not true. God has made a way for you to be reconciled and brought back into a relationship with him. Jesus experienced suffering on the cross so that you can be brought near. You have the opportunity and you have the ability to move from a foreigner or a stranger to God to become a child, a son and daughter of the living king. If you ever have questions, I'm always around. Our staff is always around, pastors around. Don't leave thinking that it sounds good to be brought into the family of God. It's not a theoretical conception. At a certain time, God entered humanity, bore the pain and bore the suffering for your freedom so that we move from strangers to sons and daughters. When we come to the Lord's table, we remember, we remember God's goodness. You know, hospitality reminds us that through being hospitable, strangers, they move closer to become true neighbors those neighbors then can move closer to become a family of God. You know, the night Jesus was betrayed took very ordinary elements, things that you guys see in your house every day and every single week. And he used those to depict and show a demonstration, illustration of his love, of how intentional he was willing to be in order to bring you near to the Father. So the night he betrayed He broke the bread. He said, take and eat. He said, this is my body that is broken. And likewise, after dinner, he took the cup, poured wine, and he said, "This this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Take it. Drink. Community is a time of reflection. Let us not move too fast or let us not forget that God's invitation and God's initiation, we get to experience that in these two very ordinary elements. As you guys take and partake, and as you guys pray, as you guys think and reflect, remember that, that God used very ordinary symbols 
to show something very magnitude and life-changing. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.